Well, if you could please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. That was the portion of Scripture that Bruce read to us at the beginning of the service. Uh, that's where we're going to spend uh, most of our time around the word this morning, Psalm 19. What a wonderful blessing it's been to be part of the service so far, um, to just see what what God has done and is doing, and if you haven't guessed it already, the theme for this morning is celebrating God's Word. Uh, and it's really such a joy for me today to be able to start a, a four-part series in November as we celebrate God's faithfulness to us as a church. Uh, that's the overarching theme for the next four weeks, but specifically we're going to be focusing over the first three weeks on, on the foundation of God's faithfulness to us as a local church, as Honey Ridge Baptist Church. Perhaps we can think of the next three weeks or the topics of the next three weeks like those um, mighty great granite pillars uh, that hold up the roof structure of an ancient building. Um, the overarching theme is going to be the faithfulness of God. That's what we're celebrating this month. But the, the pillars which hold up the roof uh, are the word of God, the gospel of our salvation, and the doctrine of the church. And so today I'm going to be looking at celebrating God's word. Next week, Shane will help us to celebrate God's salvation. And the following week, Kyle will speak to us about celebrating God's church and then on the 28th of November, Pastor Lee Robinson, who was the pastor here for over 16 years, he will come and then put the roof on the structure as we celebrate God's faithfulness. But perhaps the title of today's message may come as a little bit of a surprise to you, namely that of celebrating God's word. When last have you given thought to celebrating the Word of God. Perhaps you are someone who tends to think of God's Word in terms of rules and regulations, which yes, you certainly respect, you, you believe them to be right, uh, and yet God's Word is a burden that is just too heavy to carry. And so as you think of the Bible, you think more in terms of your failure to measure up. Or perhaps your attitude to God's word is more like your attitude to a Supreme Court judge. Yes, it's one of honor, it's one of respect, but you certainly don't want to get on the wrong side of it. Or maybe your attitude to the word of God is one of the practical agnostic. Yes, you believe that there is a God, but practically you don't really believe that he is a personal God who can be intimately known. And so the Bible really has become for you a, a history book. It's a, a book of ancient, strange religious practices, and it all seems disconnected from the real world and the daily life that you live. To be honest, the last time you really read the Bible was when you had that previous crisis. You know which one I'm talking about. And it didn't really seem to help back then, and, and so you, you just get on with doing life and you pay very little, if any, attention to the Word of God on a daily basis. Or perhaps for some of you, the Bible is associated with long, boring speeches called sermons, which either tend to make you feel guilty or put you to sleep. And so the less that it's read or discussed, the better. Let's just sing and then enjoy some good fellowship around a cup of coffee. 
Well, if you can perhaps this morning identify with, even in part, with, with any of these attitudes as I've mentioned towards the Word of God, then the title of today's sermon may certainly seem strange, Celebrating God's Word. Yes, respect and honor, you get that. Obedience, sometimes. Indifference, often. But celebration, when lost. Well, my plan today is to hopefully show you that the most appropriate attitude to the Word of God is meant to be one of celebration, delighting in God's revelation to mankind as recorded for us in the pages of the Scriptures. Because it is only in the pages of this book that we will find true joy and contentment and satisfaction in this life and in the life to come. And so if God's word recorded for us in these 66 books of the Old and the New Testament, if, if they contain the key, the secrets to temporal and eternal happiness, blessedness, then surely this is something that we should be celebrating. I'm sure that we all know uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 well, but I want to open our time today as we come to celebrate God's word to read from 2 Timothy 3 verse 14 because it gives us the key to our celebration today. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes and he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood, and here's the key phrase, you have been equipped and acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then the verse that we know so well, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, it is, it is these sacred writings and these alone in which God makes known, makes us wise through, for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The words in this book, we are told, are breathed out by God. They are his personal revelation to us in which he draws us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And then those of us who have believed, who have been born again, who have been brought from the domain of, of darkness, of sin and death into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ, well then these words become profitable, useful for teaching us, for correcting us, for reprimanding us, for training us in righteousness that we might become mature in our faith and fruitful in God's world. And so we're going to turn our attention today to Psalm 19 to see how King David celebrated the Word of God and how he encourages us as believers today to do the same. But just by way of introduction, one more passage which comes to us from Psalm 1. If you're in Psalm 19, just turn back to, to Psalm 1 because this explains to us the integral way in which the Word of God is intertwined with a life of divine blessing. In Psalm 1 we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his celebration, his joy is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree 
planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You see how the book of Psalms begins? It starts by revealing that a truly blessed person, a a truly prosperous person is the man or, or woman or boy or girl who celebrates the word of God. A person who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it. That means they they ponder on it, they pour over it night and day as the source of all nourishment and delight. That Bible-saturated person is the person that God calls blessed, whose roots are deep, whose fruit is plentiful, and whose leaf never withers. God is clear that such a life of blessing, such a life of, a life of fruitfulness, is ultimately a, a life that is devoted to the word of life. Which is why I'm so grateful that Kevin read John chapter 1. The word of God became flesh. It's a life devoted to Jesus Christ. And a person who's devoted to Jesus will always be a person who celebrates his word. And so we turn to Psalm 19. It's the psalm of the great King David. Let's see what, what he has to say about God's word. And so in the first place, thanks Gavin, the first place we see God's revelation in creation presents man without excuse in verse 1 to 6. And you might wonder as we look over, we're going to read verses 1 to 6 in a minute, you, you might wonder what this has to do with celebrating God's word. And I hope it will become clear in a few minutes, but we need to start where David starts in order to rightly appreciate the word of God. And so David starts with this topic of God's revelation to mankind by looking to God's general revelation of himself in creation. Let's read verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked today on the, on the topic of creation, except to say that I think one of the reasons that we no longer appreciate and celebrate God's word as we should as Christians is because we do not accept what God's word says about the purpose of creation. We are surrounded by so-called Christian skeptics today who say something like this. Well, David didn't know what we know today about science and the Big Bang and and evolution. And so from from his limited pre-enlightenment perspective, he described what he saw through the eyes of a simple shepherd boy. In a very simplistic and and unscientific way, he ascribed to God the things which now we can ascribe to science. Really? My response to that kind of reasoning is to take you straight to 2 Peter 1 verse 20, where Peter says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And so when David says that the heavens declare the glory of God, he wrote that because the Holy Spirit revealed that truth to him. And don't think for a a moment that this is an isolated passage. The, The whole of the Bible echoes the words of David in these verses. You can Go and read Psalm 8, go and read Psalm 33, Psalm 104, Psalm 136, Psalm 148. Do yourself a favor this afternoon, go and read Job, Job 38 to 41, four chapters, and see what God himself says about the origin of the world. Let me just whet your appetite to go and read those chapters this afternoon. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this who obscures my counselor with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, will you inform me? Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? I wish I could go on. Please do go and read those chapters this afternoon to be freshly aroused in your worship of God as you observe the created world around us. Well, then the skeptics will continue and say, but hang on, is this really a gospel issue? Does it really matter if I believe in a a literal six-day creation? That doesn't really change what I believe about Jesus. So what's the fuss? Well, absolutely it matters because the whole point of Paul in Romans 1 is that this very truth about God's creation, God's revelation of himself to man as the creator through creation is what presents every person without excuse before God. In other words, Paul argues that creation reveals the glory of God with such sufficient clarity as to make all men guilty before God and thus deserving of God's eternal punishment. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. Verse 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them. Well, how is it evident? Because God has shown it to them. Paul, how has God shown it to us? Well, he says in verse 20, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. We see the same thing when Paul preaches to uh, the, the people in Athens, to a group of pagan idol worshippers in Acts chapter 17, and he presents the gospel to them, how? By pointing them to God, who is the creator of the world and everything in it, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, who sovereignly rules over all that he has made. And he says, who in the past has overlooked men's ignorance, but in these days has called all mankind everywhere to repent because the day of judgment is coming. God as the creator is an essential aspect to God as our savior. 
and to try and separate God's general revelation of himself through creation from the gospel itself is to end up with another gospel, which Paul says is no gospel at all. And so to show us that, that what we believe about God as our creator, that this matters, it should matter to you as a Christian. You should be ready and willing to defend this truth out there in the world. Let me take you to one last reference on this, which comes to us from the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4. Gives us a very special glimpse into the very throne room of heaven. And in Revelation 4 verse 9, we read this. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so the testimony of Scripture from Genesis 1 right through to Revelation 20 is consistent. God's revelation of himself in creation is absolutely fundamental to our faith. It's one which leaves all men according to the scriptures, without excuse, and thus one which is at the heart of the gospel. And so coming back to Psalm 19, look at how David picks up on this theme of universal accountability before the God of creation. Verse three to six, he says, looking at creation, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Creation speaks loudly. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And then he gives us an example of this. In them he has set a tent for the son who comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So David is clear, as, as Paul was in Acts and Romans, that every single human being who lives in this created world is accountable to this creator because God has revealed his incredible glory to us through his creation. Both in terms of the minute details under the scrutiny of an electron microscope. Do yourself a, a favor and just go and Google some of the, the images of what our technology these days have been able to reveal to us in terms of the minute details of God's creation, as well as on the other end of the spectrum, the, the immensity of the universe observed through the most powerful of radio telescopes, to the way David puts it, the fact that every living creature experiences the warmth of the sun on our bodies every day. The heavens declare the glory of God and this glory must lead us to worship him as the creator. And so I hope you are starting to see what this has to do with celebrating God's word. Because the glory and the majesty of creation all around us, according to David, according to Paul, is perfectly sufficient to present God to us as the only one worthy of all our worship. 
But the scripture goes on to reveal that every human being, all mankind, is thus a guilty sinner before this holy and awesome God because by nature we do not worship him. Instead, we are told in scripture that every one of us has gone astray. Paul explains in Romans 1 that we have exchanged this truth of who God is for a lie and we worship instead the created things instead of the creator. And so that then leads me on then to the second point. If, if God's revelation in creation, as, as wonderful and as glorious as it is, leaves all men without excuse, then what do we need to be saved does creation also reveal the way of salvation? Can you go and sit up on top of the mountain and look at the sunset and be made right with God? No, you cannot. You need something more. You need God's special revelation through his word. And so in the second place, thanks Gavin, God's revelation in scripture presents man with the only solution. God's glory in creation is sufficient to leave us all guilty before God without excuse on the day of judgment. And so we need special revelation from God to then understand the way of salvation. So let's read from verse 7 to see how David puts this. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandments of the lord are pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever the rules of the lord are true and righteous altogether I want you to, to understand the flow of David's argument here as he moves from the incredible picture of God's revelation to us in creation. He now moves to a description of God's word and he is arguing from the lesser being creation to the greater being the word of God. If God's general revelation is so amazingly clear, how much more amazingly clear is his special revelation to us in the word of God? John Calvin says that the word of God is actually a little piece of heaven on earth. He says, although it lives on the earth, making its way to our ears and living in our hearts, it still retains its celestial nature since it comes down to us in such a way that it is not subject to earthly changes. Is that your view of the word of God? When you get up and your alarm goes off at five in the morning, do you say, I can't wait to, to get hold of a piece of heaven on earth this morning? Or do you say, oh, I'll get to it later. Let me first check Facebook. Let me just check my WhatsApp messages. Let me just check everyone else's uh, WhatsApp statuses and updates. And maybe if there's time, I'll read the Bible. Is that our view of the Word of God? Well, let's consider then how David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look at how he describes this Word to us. We look in verse 7 to 11 that David uses six synonyms to describe the word of God. He says, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules or the judgments of the Lord. 
These, these six phrases have been described as, as different facets of the diamond which make up the Word of God. Each one is effectively a synonym for the whole, but each one gives us a slightly different perspective into the nature and the beauty of God's Word. Remember that God's Word, the, what you have in the Bible, is a reflection of God's character. Just like the sun's light will reflect differently off different faces of the diamond, so the different aspects of God's word here reveal to us the, the nature and the character and the beauty of God. Notice that all six statements include of the Lord. And if you've got your English Bibles, the Lord should all be in capitals. It's the word Yahweh. The name of the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And, and this is significant for two reasons. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And there David uses the Hebrew word El. It's, it's a generic name that was used in ancient traditions to describe a, a deity of majesty and power. And obviously in the context of Scripture, it's a name that's used very often to refer to the God of Israel. But in verse 7 to 14, David uses the specific covenant name of God, which he gave specially to his people Israel, the name Yahweh, and he uses it seven times. This is the name which speaks most especially about God as Savior, as Redeemer of his covenant people. And so as we, we moved from general revelation to special revelation, so David has moved from the general name of God to the very special name of God. And then secondly, this phrase repeated six times in these verses and again in verse 14, of the Lord, makes it abundantly clear who is the source of this word. The scriptures are, are not a, a collection of the ideas of men, but they are from beginning to end the words of the Lord. So let's quickly consider these facets of the diamond to, to get an understanding of the scope of the character of God's word. The law of the Lord, that's the Hebrew word Torah. In its narrowest sense, it refers to the first five books of Moses. But used in Scripture, it is extending to all of God's Word. It's the entire canon. Whatever has been revealed by God at that point in history was collectively referred to as the law of the Lord. But also the idea of a law carries with it this idea of instruction. Instruction in, in righteous or holy living. And so all Scripture to David is, is part of God's law, God's instructions to humanity as to how we should live before God. Secondly, he says, the testimony of the Lord. Now here we have reference to God's word being the testimony. The testimony, the Bible is God's witness of truth. We, we know what it is when someone is called to testify in a court of law. Well, the Bible is God's witness. It's his testimony to the world of himself. John 1 verse 14, we read that earlier. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the fullest representation of the testimony of God to this world. John 12 verse 49 says, Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. The words of Jesus are the very words of God himself. 
John 16 verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. What we have in the pages of scripture is the testimony of God of truth. Then we see thirdly, the precepts of the Lord. And the word precepts here, or statutes, refer especially to principles for daily living, for instruction, the, the guiding principles or standards by which we are to live. And so it is a, a broad word referring to all that God says about how you and I should live our lives on this earth. Psalm 119, that's another uh, bit of homework for this afternoon after today's sermon. Just go and read Psalm 119. But in Psalm 119, which focuses entirely on the Word of God, 20 times the psalmist makes use of this word precepts. He has just three. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. See, the precepts of God help you and I as Christians to walk on the way of truth. And then he moves on and he says, the commandments of the Lord. And, and this ties in with precepts, but the word commands here is more specifically speaking about God's authority. His word is not a book of, of general ideas and, and vague suggestions which you can pick and choose as you feel appropriate. No, it is one of clear instruction for personal obedience. When the sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, when he speaks, his commands are to be obeyed. In the Next one is the fear of the Lord, and, and this, is, this concept of the fear of the Lord is often linked in Scripture to the source of true wisdom, true knowledge and understanding. The believer who encounters God through his word is filled with awe, is filled with reverence, is overcome with the fear of the Lord, and that leads us to worship him. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praises endure forever. And then finally, we see the rules or judgments of the Lord. I think the word rules, if that's what you've got in English, um, is more referring to uh, the rulings of the Lord. One commentator says that the scriptures are the divine magistrate's verdict on everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so here we have David's description of God's word. It's a description which is as deep as it is broad. It's covering all that God has spoken by the Holy Spirit. The question which the skeptic then throws out at us is this. Well, can it really be trusted? You've got your Bible in your hands as you turn to any portion of scripture, can we trust it all? Can it really be trusted? Can we celebrate a book which claims to be from God if it's full of errors and contradictions? That's what we're told. So can this book encompassing God's law, testimony, precepts, commandments, wisdom, knowledge, judgments, can it be trusted entirely in everything that it speaks to? Is it perfectly sufficient for everything in this life? Well, David goes on to make that abundantly clear. So clear, in fact, that to deny what David says here about the Scriptures reveals that such a person has a heart which actually is set against God himself. 
Listen to the, the six qualifications David gives to the Scriptures. He says, the word of the Lord is perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. Now, what do all those words mean? Well, pretty much exactly what they mean. You don't need a, an advanced qualification in language studies to understand each of these words and, and how they come together collectively to speak of the Scriptures. The law of the Lord is perfect. If your child comes home from school and they said, Dad, I got the perfect score in my maths exam, 98%. No, you didn't, son. Uh, good, good mark, by the way. Uh, but what happened to the other two? No, the word of the Lord scores 100% every time. There's not one aspect of God's word that needs amending or fixing or correcting. It is the perfect standard of truth to every matter that it addresses. The testimony of the Lord. We've seen what that testimony is. It's sure. It's trustworthy. Again, think of a courtroom context. Either the witness tells the truth or the witness tells a lie. If they tell the truth, their testimony is sure. If they bend the truth or they hide the truth, their testimony is false. And we know from our secular courts that a witness who proves unreliable in one part of their testimony cannot be trusted in the rest. Their testimony is a reflection of their character. And so it is with God's word. His testimony, his witness is sure. It's trustworthy. God's word is in its entirety a reflection of his character. The precepts of the Lord are right, he goes on to say, and that means morally upright, it means straight, it, it means level. God's word is not crooked, it, there's nothing dubious in his word, nothing that will ever lead us astray. Everything about his word can be trusted to direct the steps of your and my daily life. In other words, God's word and this is particularly re relevant to us today with the, the gender revolution, with the sexuality revolution that we are experiencing. The word of God is not open to revision. It's not to be adjusted to suit our changing cultural standards of truth and morality. Rather, it is the pure standard by which everything in our world is to be measured. And then he says, the word of the Lord is clean enduring forever. Uh, we've all become hand sanitizer crazy in these COVID times. And I'm sure you've seen on, on many of the bottles that they advertise that their sanitizer kills 99.9% .9 of the germs. Is that what David means when he says that the Bible is, is clean? Is it 99.9% .9 error free? No, the word clean in the Old Testament context means ceremonial cleanness. God made it clear, nothing which was defiled or imperfect or impure of any kind was considered acceptable to him. Elsewhere in, in Psalm 12 verse 6, David says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. Seven times, that's the Hebrew idiom for completely pure. And notice too that David would have been very aware of the process of transmitting God's word from one generation to the next through scribal copies. And yet he says the word of the Lord is clean 
enduring forever. This is a wonderful testimony to the sovereignty of God over the process of preserving his word in its purity for the generations to come. And then lastly, David says, the rules or judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And true simply means true, without error. But is it all true? Is there not some part of it which is perhaps true, but other parts which are unreliable? Absolutely not, says David. God's word is true, righteous, altogether. And the word altogether here is describing holy in its full context. The extent of God's word from beginning to end is entirely true. All of it, cover to cover. And so there we have a wonderful summary of the nature and the quality of God's word. It's entirely perfect, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's sufficient, and then you read what it does for us. You read, sorry, my, the wind blew my pages here. Um, just read what it does for us there. From verse 7, it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes causes the fear of God to come upon us. What you and I hold in our hands, what this church has preached from this pulpit and taught to our children and studied in our home groups for 40 years is the perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, and altogether righteous word of God. And so it is certainly appropriate that we come today to celebrate God's word. But as I close today, I need to remind you that the word of God is, is not an end in itself. Yes, Baptists have historically been known as people of the book. But that does not mean that we worship a sacred document. It means that we are people who are so filled with the word of God that it, it flows out of us in, in every aspect of life. Is that still true of us today? It does not mean that that we come to this one pillar of God's faithfulness, the word of God, and we bow down and we worship it. No, this book is a means to a far greater end, and that end is the glory of God through the salvation of his church. And so next week, Shane will, will come and help us to see the salvation in Jesus Christ, which, which this book reveals. And the following week, Kyle will help us to, to celebrate the church of Jesus Christ, which we then as saved sinners have been called to belong to. And so not wanting to run ahead of our series, I, I must just end by showing you that David's great Psalm 19 moves from the general revelation of God in creation to the special revelation of the Lord in his written word in order to accomplish the great purpose of God in bringing us into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ so that we might become the covenant people of God. You'll recall in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with those two men. And do you remember what he said to them? He said, O foolish ones and, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and, and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
this book in all its purity and perfection, in all its revelation of the character of God is most clearly seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must see today that the only way to truly celebrate God's word is to rightly respond to God's word. And the point's already up on the board. God's revelation in Christ demands our response. The only proper response. If you say to me, Clinton, I I want to celebrate God's word as you've spoken about it today. I've seen something perhaps afresh today of of the, the glory and the beauty of the word of God. How do I go about celebrating it rightly? Well, David gives us the answer in the last three verses. Through a conviction of sin, through a cry for forgiveness, through a concern for holiness, and a declaration of faith in God as his redeemer. We can't look at these verses today. Let me just close by reading them to you and then we'll pray. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May the Lord help us to celebrate his word. Let's come to him in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you today for this reminder from King David of the place of centrality and and celebration that his word had in his life. And we know that that did not lead David to being this perfect person who never struggled with sin because in delighting in your word he became aware of his own sinfulness. In delighting in your word he became aware of the Lord Jesus Christ as his saviour. In delighting in your word he became aware of the gospel and the call to obedience and the great privilege of belonging to the people of God. And so Lord as we come today to celebrate your word, to celebrate the the proclamation of your word in this church over 40 years. May the right celebration and the right response be evident in our conviction of sin, in our crying out to you for forgiveness and mercy, in our desire as your people to live holy lives, and our ongoing day-by-day proclamation of this gospel truth of God as our Redeemer and Savior to ourselves, to our children, to the people in our community and to the ends of the world so that your kingdom may continue to accomplish the purposes. And so we ask that as your word has gone out today, it will not return to you void. It will not return to you empty or lacking, but will accomplish in each of us individually and in us as a church, the purposes for which you intended it. We promise to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.